I'm not sure about you uh, as a parent, but if I can remind you if that there was ever a time that you remember when you had a child who was born, that you held them in your arms and they were so small and they had those tiny little toes in that death grip that they could wrap around your finger. I remember bringing home each of my children, some of them at various ages and stages, but them being so small and precious. And a few weeks ago, I'm driving across town and I hear from the back seat, Hey, Dad. <laughs> I'm like, what happened to my little baby, right? <laughs> It blew me away that something so small can grow up and become big and strong and mature. And I thought, oh my goodness, what a picture of the church. That we, the church, began as something so small 2,000 years ago that today we're all over the world we're big and strong and growing in maturity. What I want us to do this morning is let's go back to our birth. Let's go to the place where the church began. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 where we're going through a sermon series as a faith family through the book of Acts in a sermon series entitled Sent. At this point in Acts chapter 2, Jesus has ascended into heaven. The disciples have been praying. They have replaced Judas Iscariot with Matthias as the 12 apostle. The Spirit falls at Pentecost. The disciples speak in foreign languages, which grabs the attention of these Jewish visitors to Jerusalem who are in town for the Feast of Pentecost. They hear the gospel being preached in their own heart language. It's amazing to me how God takes the gospel and he applies it into the heart languages of the people. What we see in Acts 2 is a reversal of Babel. Okay, it's a reversal of Genesis 11. Instead of God confusing the languages and the people scatter, we see where the people gather at Jerusalem and they hear, verse 11, the magnificent acts of God in their own heart language. Well, some people begin to mock the disciples. They accuse them of celebrating happy hour at 9 a.m., and But Peter, he stands up, he rebukes them, and under the power of the Holy Spirit, he seizes this moment to stand up and to preach the gospel. He points them to the prophet Joel, who foretold of the coming day when men and women would stand up and they would preach, they would prophesy. And Peter is telling them, that's happening right now. What Joel saw happening in the future is being realized in this moment. It's occurring right now. Moreover, this Jesus of Nazareth, Peter says, he performed miracles among you. You saw him do these miracles. He was nailed to a cross. But, verse 24, God raised him up. Death could not hold this king down. What King David said would happen in Psalm 16, verse 25, that the Holy One would not see decay. It actually happened. Jesus defeated death, which by the way, we get to celebrate next week at Easter. But as followers of Jesus, we celebrate every day. 
we, verse 32, he says, we are all witnesses of this. And this Jesus whom you crucified, we saw last week, Peter's listeners began to feel tremendous guilt over that statement. This Jesus whom you crucified, they felt the weight of the responsibility of, of his death is upon them. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to take some time to look at the same passage we did last week because there's still some more meat on the bone. Uh, There's some more things here in this text I want us to look at together. Now, if you missed last week's message, I want to encourage you to go back. You can get it on the Westwood app. Uh, You can get it on all the the different listening devices of, of YouTube and our website and all these podcasts. But I want us to take some time to go back to this text of Luke 2, 37 through 41, because there are still some more things I'd like for us to unpack together. So let's look together in Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 37. Scripture says, When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. The gospel of Jesus Christ transforms the hearts of all who believe upon him. In Acts 2, Simon Preter, he he preaches the gospel and 3,000 people repent of their sin, trust in Christ, and the church is born. This morning in the text, I want us to see how the gospel birthed the church and what that means for us today. I want you to see first thing in the text is the messenger who preaches the gospel. We see here in the text, the messenger who preaches the gospel. Don't miss the significance of the man who is preaching in Acts 2. It's Simon Peter. He's the one who's bringing God's word to bear upon the people. This is the same Simon Peter who followed Jesus throughout his ministry, where he watched Jesus heal the sick and raise the dead and cast out demons and transfigure into a temporary glorified body. He heard Jesus teach life-altering truths about the kingdom to thousands. Peter ate countless meals with Jesus and learned how to pray from Jesus. He learned how to preach from Jesus. Peter was rebuked by Jesus when he tried to prevent Jesus from going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. You see, Peter was a fire, ready, aim kind of guy. He would speak and then think. He would act and then consider. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, who would deny Jesus three times but Simon Peter? But John 21, Jesus restored Simon Peter to the ministry and commanded him, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, shepherd my sheep. And here is Simon Peter in Acts 2, preaching the gospel, calling people to believe the gospel, and thousands believe upon Jesus. You see, Acts 2 is a great reminder that you don't have to be awesome for God to use you, just available and obedient. You can look throughout the pattern of Simon Peter's life, and this is not a guy who had diplomas hanging on his wall. This is not a wealthy man who had a ton of ministry experience. He's a blue-collar fisherman. 
This is not a guy that you would look at and say he's immediately qualified for church leadership based upon his pedigree before he meets Jesus. In fact, you look at the life and the ministry of the disciples, there's not a whole lot that's impressive about these guys until they meet Jesus. But Simon Peter met Jesus, and he made many mistakes throughout his life during those about three years that he spent with Jesus. He learned a lot of mistakes, and as we go throughout the New Testament, Peter continues to make some mistakes. But it's amazing to me that for God to use you, you just have to be available and obedient. That's what Simon Peter is. He's available, saying, God, you can use me, and I'll do what you say. Question, is that true for you? Are you available to the Lord's leading? As he calls you to the task of pointing people to his son, are you available? And then are you obedient? Are you willing to do what he says? This is what we see here in the life of this messenger, this man who preaches. He is available to whatever the Lord is calling him to do. And the same is true for you and I. Is we've got to be available and obedient to what the Lord calls us to do. Now here's the deal. You may not stand up and preach in front of thousands, but you can preach to your classroom. You can stand up and preach at your kitchen table. You can stand up and preach at a faculty meeting. You can stand up and preach at the garden club. You can stand up and preach in the dugout. That wherever God places you, leveraging your influence, strategically taking the position that God has given you with your personality, your gifting, your passions, and you leverage that. That you're at the car shop and hanging out with the guys and changing tires and oil. And then you say, hey guys, let me tell you about something that has totally changed my life. That you're hanging out at the garden club and you say, hey guys, before we go further with conversation, I need to share with you something that has totally rocked my world. That before, guys, we take the field, we need to talk about something that's far more important than what the scoreboard is about to say. And it's the gospel. It being available and obedient here is Simon Peter, a man with a track record of foolishness and bad decisions and saying terrible things when he shouldn't have said them. And the Lord says, that's the guy I'm going to use. He's available. He's obedient. He's not perfect. So take perfection off the table. Don't think you have to be crushing it to be used by God. Don't think you have to have an immaculate past in order to be used by the Lord. Don't disqualify yourself for where God has already qualified you to point people to his son. And it doesn't require a position or a platform or a pay raise. It's leveraging the position right where you already are. Using the relationships of people whom are in your life and you point them to Christ. This is what God calls you and I to do is to preach the gospel, to point people to Jesus. As we want to we make Christ known where he is not known yet. Now the Lord may not have called you yet to Southeast Asia or to Sub-Saharan Africa. He may one day, but for now he's called you to Shelby County. That right here, we have an opportunity before us, a harvest of souls in which we get to point people to Jesus 
And I want to point you to Simon Peter today as a man who did not have it all together. He was imperfect and broken and full of foolish mistakes. But here's a guy who was available and obedient and God used him. And guess what? He can use you too. You put your yes on the table. You say, Lord, I want you to use me however you see fit and watch what God will do with your life. The impact you will have on the nations and your neighbors as you say yes to him by being available and obedient. And as we point people to Jesus, watch how God's going to use it. You know, so hopefully we're going to get to Acts chapter 8, hopefully in the next 10 years. (laughs) I can't wait to get there, y'all. We will one day. But in Acts chapter 8, oh man, this is so good. It's amazing. We see in chapter 7, Stephen gets stoned. Here's a follower of Jesus, a deacon who stands up, preaches the gospel, and he gets martyred for his faith in Christ. You get to Acts chapter 8, and panic ensues across the city of Jerusalem. We see this this terrible fear that now attacks the church. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, says, Saul agreed with putting uh, Stephen to death. On that day, a severe persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And watch this. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the land of Judea and Samaria. So those who scattered went on their way preaching the word. Don't miss that. The apostles are staying in Jerusalem. They're not running. They're staying. But everybody else... The bakers, the fishermen, the stay-at-home moms, the salesmen, they're running for their lives with their children and any earthly possessions they can take with them. But as they are going, verse 4, what are they doing? Preaching the word. Not trained professionals. People like you. People like me who are not the sharpest knives in the drawer. People whom God is just using, people who are available and obedient. It's amazing how the Lord can do that. He takes these normal, common, ordinary people. And little did Saul know that he would be the means through which the gospel would spread throughout the world. That God takes the persecution and the attack of the church for the sake of the spread of the gospel. That what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good and the salvation of many. That indeed God is able to turn things around against the enemy for the advancement of his name. Make no mistake, Satan is the most frustrated being there is. Every time he thinks he has a victory, God turns it around against him. Ultimately, look at the cross, where there he thinks, yes, I have killed God's son. And the Lord says, that's right, you just accomplished my greater purpose. So we are not those who fear persecution. We are not those who panic when those who rise up against us because the mission remains. The gospel remains. We've got to get the name of Jesus to those who've never heard. This is why Paul emphasizes in Romans chapter 10. He says, how then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Peter's feet are beautiful, for he's bringing the gospel to bear. And may I say to you, your feet are beautiful when you bring the name of Jesus to those in your world. Our mission as a church is to invest in people who will impact their world for Jesus. We want to mobilize and equip you so that you might go and 
impact your world for Jesus. This is the mission that God has called us to here in Shelby County and beyond. And so we're not going to be afraid of those who may rise up against us. It's interesting that there's various reports about when the gospel arrived in China. Uh, 1949, there's about 4 million Christians who are in China at the time. And around that time, an emperor rose up named Mao Zedong. And Mao Zedong made it his mission to kill and persecute the church. Many, many Christians lost their lives. After the 29 year of Mao Zedong, there were an estimated 100 million Christians all over China. And the common saying among missionaries even to today is, is that Mao Zedong was the greatest evangelist in Chinese history. How would the gospel spread like that? It's because people took the gospel wherever they went. Christians were unashamed of the gospel. They knew it was the power of God unto salvation for all who would believe. They knew that life and death are at stake and they want to see their neighbors and their friends and their teammates and coworkers come to know Christ. And so at great risk of their own lives, they were willing to risk it all so that the, motivated by love, they would reach their neighbors for Christ. This is what we see even happening here in Acts 2. Now here is a guy that about, 50 days earlier was scared of a little girl who said, you're with that Jesus fella. And now this man who was scared earlier is standing up and boldly preaching and saying, I've got a word for you. He's going right to the heart of the hornet's nest. He's right there at the temple steps proclaiming the gospel And what does God do? He uses it as a means of salvation. Do not estimate the influence that God has given to you. Leverage that for the sake of Christ. Come what may. Willing to suffer whatever the cost. Even for the sake of brothers and sisters in China who are willing to risk their lives. And even Simon Peter, who as we'll see later on in the book, came within an inch of losing his life several times because he counted the gospel as more valuable. So what we see in the text first is the messenger who preaches the gospel. The second thing I want you to see is the message of salvation in the gospel. So what is the message that we preach? We unpacked this last week, but let's review the text again. Look at verse 38. Repent and be baptized. The call is to turn from sin and to trust in Christ. To be baptized, it means to be immersed. That believers are to be immersed by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That when we trust in Christ, we are baptized by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so whether it's vacation Bible school or at your parents' kitchen table or on the side of a road or in a church, when you first believed, the Holy Spirit baptized you. He came into your heart and life. You were identified with Christ. There was union with Jesus that took place when you believed the gospel. And so it's this gospel that when you trust in Christ for salvation, he comes into your heart and life by the Holy Spirit. That when you are baptized, he says there in the text, it means that you are now hidden in Christ. You are united with Christ. In Matthew 16, 
Jesus took his disciples on a road trip, on a retreat up north to Caesarea Philippi. And here he asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist or other prophets. And then he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, same guy, steps up and hits a 500-foot home, home run and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You are the one who has been promised. And Jesus says, and I say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now let's be clear. The rock that the church is built on is not Peter. But rather, it's upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the foundation, the buttress of the truth. He is the chief cornerstone that the builders rejected. Jesus is the foundation of the church. And so the church is built upon the rock of Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. You even see here in the text how, how Jesus calls it my church. Here he is, he's emphasizing that he is the Lord, he is the owner of the church. That when the Holy Spirit fell in Acts 2 at Pentecost, Peter preaches the gospel, he's pointing the church to the foundation upon which she is built, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the church is Christ. This is not my church, it's not your church, it's Christ's church. We belong to him. He is the head, he is the foundation. He is the husband. He is the chief cornerstone. And so we submit and follow him and we stand our feet upon him. And when you give your life to Christ, there are many things that happen. You're adopted into the family. You bear his family name. You receive an inheritance that's coming. And there's so much more. But I want us to look verse 38 at two things that happens when you believe upon Christ. We see that there is forgiveness of your sins and you receive the Holy Spirit. So when you trust in Jesus, you are forgiven of all of your sins. Now, the enemy loves to remind us that, that is, if that is not true. The enemy will lie to you and tell you you are not forgiven. The enemy will slander you and slander Christ and seek to remind you of everything in your past. He will shame you. May I say to you, that's not the voice of Jesus. He says, forgiveness of your sins. You're washed, y'all. You're clean. You're made new. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And his blood was sufficient to pay for all of your sin. Everything in your past that you're ashamed of. The things that you've done and said, where you're just like, oh, what was I thinking? The blood of Jesus speaks a better word. That even when your sin is great, his mercy is greater still. This is what we trust in, is in the gospel. And who gets the glory for the forgiveness of our sins? Well, it ain't us. Jesus alone gets the glory for washing us and cleaning us, making us new creations. You're forgiven. And if you forget everything else I say to you today, Hear this from the lips of Jesus. You are forgiven. You're made new. You belong to him. Verse 38. Forgiveness of your sins. 
You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. It's like a little child at Christmas. You're offered a a Christmas gift, and the kids don't pull out their wallets and pay you right there on the spot. They open their hands, and they say, thank you. They honor the giver. That's what salvation is. Is God's given you eternal rescue through His Son. So you open up your hands, and you say, thank you. And you worship, and you thank the giver who's given you the best gift of all. And anybody can get in on this. The qualification is that you must be a sinner, and guess what? You qualify. But all who turn from sin and trust in Christ, you are forgiven. But the second thing we see, we also receive in the text, verse 38, is that you receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, He comes and takes up residence in your heart that when you trust in Christ, the Spirit seals you until the day of redemption. He abides. He lives inside of you forever. He will never leave those who trust in Christ for salvation. Last week, can I just share with you something that I learned last week? It was so precious. We closed out our services last week by reading Psalm 51. And there's this phrase that David uses as he's confessing his sin of how he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and he murdered her husband. And as he's just broken before God, he says this. And as I was reading it, like the Holy Spirit was just bringing great comfort to my heart. He prays, God, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, under the old covenant, the Holy Spirit did not permanently stay upon believers. You see it throughout the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit would come upon believers and then he would leave. Under the new covenant, in Christ, the Holy Spirit stays. When you trust in Jesus, he stays. He has sealed you until the day of redemption, Ephesians 1. You are kept. No one, Jesus says in John 10, can snatch you from his omnipotent hand. You are kept by Jesus. There's nothing you can do to lose your salvation. He holds fast to you. And as I read that last week, Lord, thank you that you will not take your spirit from us. You are with us. You live inside of us. And you're going to give us life. That Romans 8, that he, um, come on, Bruce. He who, come on, Bruce, where is it? He will also give life to your mortal bodies. Come on, I, I just fumbled that one. I'm sorry. Romans 8. And those have a hard time with scripture memory. Man, it's hard work. But the good news is, when you trust in Christ, verse 38, the Holy Spirit comes upon you and he stays. But the converse is also true. If you do not trust in Jesus, you do not have the Holy Spirit. You don't trust in Jesus, you don't get the Spirit. You submit to Jesus, you receive the Spirit, and he's yours forever. He's your comforter, your friend. He convicts you of sin. He encourages you, leads you in righteousness. He teaches you scripture. He's always working in your heart. He's conforming you, Romans 8, 29, and he's conforming you into the image of Jesus. He's with you forever. And this is what you receive when you believe the gospel and the promise of the forgiveness of sins and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's promised for all who believe. Verse 39, it's for Jews and Gentiles. It's for those who are of the lineage of Abraham and those who are not. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is for everyone. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
that the gospel is both for Jews and Gentiles, young and old. This calls for men and women everywhere to turn from sin and trust in Christ. That verse 40, that with many other words, Peter testified and strongly urged them saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. You see, sin abounds among the people who had rejected the Messiah. And there were many who rejected Jesus, even though they saw him, they saw his miracles, they heard his teaching. They still rejected him. He's saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. This generation that is getting to see with their own eyes what many throughout the ages have longed to see. He's saying here, be saved from this generation. Because little did they know that in 70 AD, Rome would come and attack and slaughter so many right there in Jerusalem. You see, there was a call for an immediate response. Here there's an urgency to Peter's tone. So when you're sharing the gospel with those in your life, there's got to be an urgency. And this is just not polite, delicate words. We're not giving a flowery invitation of, hey, this is so esoteric and wonderful. No, heaven and hell hang in the balance, believe the gospel. Trusting Christ, this is the tone of Peter saying, be saved from this generation. There's an urgency. Flee from the wrath that is to come and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there are many today who are going to die thinking they had more time. You do not know when your day is coming. Be prepared by turning from your sin and trusting in Christ. It was in 1871 that Dwight Lyman Moody was preaching in Chicago. D.L. Moody was this great evangelist who was used by God all over the world to preach the gospel and bring many to Christ. He was a Billy Graham-esque person. One night as he was preaching in Chicago, he gave an invitation in such a way in which he said, I'm not going to invite you to come forward. And I'm not going to invite you to make a decision right now. I want you just to go home and think about this. Little did he know that that night, the great Chicago fire would break out. It destroyed over 100,000 homes. 300 people died. Some of whom were in that service. And D.L. Moody said, from that point on, I'm always going to encourage and implore people to believe. And I hope that will be true for me and you. Is that there will be an urgency, just as Peter is giving here in the text. This invitation of trust in Christ. Believe upon him. I urge you. Believe the gospel. Trust in Christ. Feel the weight of the eternal impact of a decision for someone trusting in Christ. And if you don't know Jesus today, would you turn from your sin and trust in him now? Believe the gospel and he will rescue you. This is what we exist for as a church. It's this gospel that began the church and it's this gospel that continues to sustain the church and it's this gospel that is the mission of the church is that we've got a message to proclaim. And I see a room full of messengers with a precious message to proclaim. 
Charles Spurgeon, as you all know, is a great hero of the faith of mine. He's a pastor in uh, 1800s over in London. Incredible ministry. And uh, every Saturday night, I read one of his sermons. It's kind of like my pregame, right? Getting fired up to get before you. And at his funeral, one of his friends, who was a pastor of another church in the same area, large church in London, and he said this. He says, I cannot preach the gospel better than Charles Spurgeon. But there's no one who can preach a better gospel. You don't have to be the most articulate, eloquent, or winsome personality. You don't have to try and be better than someone else in how you say it. There's no better gospel to say. You bring the word to your family and your friends, your coworkers and teammates and neighbors, and you invite them to believe. You don't have to be the prince of preachers. Just be faithful, available, and obedient. So we see the messenger, we see the message, and we see thirdly, the multitude who believe the gospel. Verse 41, those who accept his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. What I love about Acts 2 is Peter is doing exactly what Jesus said he would be doing. Do you remember back in Matthew 4 where Jesus called Peter? He and his brother are casting their net into the sea. And Peter says, Simon Peter, leave your nets. Come follow me, for you will be a fisher of men. Acts 2. Peter is casting out the net of the gospel, and he catches 3,000. He's fishing for men. And the text says, verse 41, that they were baptized. Okay, so for years, I've been like, how? How do you baptize 3,000 people on a mountain, which Jerusalem is on, in the desert, which Israel pretty much is in that area and south, where do you baptize them? And I got to see for my, you thought I was done with pictures from Israel, (laughs) y'all. I was introduced to the mikvah, okay? A couple years ago, the mikvah. It's a baptismal. Looks kind of like this. According to the book of Leviticus, in order to be clean, both ceremonially um, and personally, a Jew needs to go into a mikvah. They will go under the water and walk out. This is a regular ceremonial act that Jews would take. In fact, even to this day, there are mikvahs that are built into the homes of Jews so they can be ceremonially clean to keep the Levitical law. But there's these little mikvahs all over, right by the southern steps. Before any Jew could go into the temple, they would have to go underwater to be ceremonially clean to approach God in worship. So where can these 3,000 people be saved? Mikvahs. Something they were already very familiar with. Something they understood that for them on the outside, it was going underwater in which they would come out as clean. Now Peter's saying, if you want to be clean, you look unto Jesus by faith for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the Holy Spirit 
And so now, Paul says in Romans 6, that when we go underwater, you are buried with Christ in baptism. And you are raised to walk in newness of life. See, a mikvah has further solidified the conviction in my heart that baptism is to be by immersion. It's going underwater. Because this is what was happening here in the early church. It's going underwater. It's symbolizing the transformation of the heart that has already taken place. And for us who follow Jesus, we see a multitude of 3,000 who believe that day. May I say to you, this is what we are to give our lives to. In fact, it's your impact point. It's this. Give your life to investing in people who will impact the world for Jesus, namely the church. This morning, I want to invite you to give your life to the church of Jesus Christ. To say, I am going to invest my life, my time, my resources into investing in something that Jesus says not even the gates of hell can stop her. That the church is something that is bigger than any single one of us and if all of us were wiped off the map, the church marches on. And for thousands of years, emperors and governors and governments have sought to snuff out the church, and yet the church remains. Nothing can stop the church. And what we see happening in Acts 2 is like a mustard seed that thousands of years later is now a forest all over the world. Redwoods all across the landscape of the four corners of the world. And though it looks at times and appears as if the church is losing, make no mistake, the church cannot lose because we've already won. The tomb is empty. The gospel is true. So let's be a people who give our lives for the very thing that Jesus shed his own blood for. The people around us knowing and following the Lord Jesus Christ.